Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ian, very good to see you. Um, you might first of all give us some background on yourself. I know that, uh, like myself, you grew up in the Toker area and your family and extended family have always been you know, very strongly linked to soccer. Um, I, know, I know that from, from your history. Uh, well, thank you, Trevor. Good to see you again. Um, look, I've I've worked in in a lot of sports. I mean, obviously, I think football is so high profile, um, and and I've worked with some high profile football clubs and on some high profile football things. So, I think that tends to grab the attention. But uh, I mean, if you look at my career overall, I've done an awful lot in rugby down through the years. I've worked in Formula One. I've worked in golf. Worked on the Ryder Cup in the Olympics. Uh, you know, crazy things like round the world sailing, darts. I mean, b- basically, if um, if there's a sport that has a commercial element to it, I've, I think I've worked in it um, at some stage or other. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, even going back almost twenty years now, the agency I worked with in London, we represented the England rugby team when they won the World Cup in two thousand and three. Um, I've worked on a lot of the big rugby World Cup sponsorships, the the ones which DHL did in. Um, 2011 and 2015, the DHL Lions rugby sponsorships, and you know, and also um, my previous company in Cape Town in South Africa, we were involved in all of the work with um, Western Province and Stormers, which are some of the big rugby franchises mm. in that part of the world, and also with Newlands Rugby Stadium, we operated that on a match day. We run the Cape Town Seven, so there was a lot of rugby background in my career, and um, and you know, the last. You know, deal I did before I went to to Leicester City was actually a, a rugby deal. I brought DHL in as sponsors at Harlequins Rugby. So there's lots of rugby mm. rugby there, and and obviously, Munster is is huge also in our family. Um, and um, yeah, I'm very proud to be here. Yeah, we we'll, we'll get to all of that later. Just just uh, growing up, I suppose as a young player around the Tucker. I know you played with Casement. I played with the rivals in Ballyhan, Killary and Celtic. But you're a few years younger than me, so our, our paths wouldn't have crossed that on the pitch. But uh, I played as a winger. I think you played as a winger as well, did you? I did. I was a. a I probably had a. You know, isn't I think it's the old Bill Shankly line. My pace was deceptive. <laughs> I, I, I was slower than you think. Uh, yeah, I was. I was a, a winger, and I tried to stay out of trouble. And uh, we used to have great rivalries back then. Um, mm. You know, I remember Springfield. We had you know, people like you know, Michael Devine playing for Springfield back then. Uh, I was a year behind you know, that famous Rockmount team with Roy Keane and uh, mm. and the other guys. Um, but we had a big rivalry at the time with with Wilton. I remember and uh, and also with Carrigaline. And uh, 
and back then, I remember the Evans Cup, the under fifteen Evans Cup was was the big target, and uh, um, we had a really strong team, and um, and uh, we we actually made it to the national stage, and we going up to Donegal. Um, you know, we won that round, and then I think we got knocked out in the quarterfinal in Dublin. But you know, we we were at a good we were at a good level. Mm, definitely, yeah. Um, I know that from from reading previously, and you were asked as a young fella, "What would you like to do when you grow up?" And you said watching football for free. Was that true? Was it? Yeah, pr- pretty much. Uh, well, watching sport for free. Um, mm. You know, I mean, and I'm lucky that sport has changed uh, so much in the last twenty years mm. that um, you know you can have a proper career in sport now and. Um, I mean, the American sports, baseball, American football, have always you know hired graduates you know right from the nineteen sixties and and the other sports you know in Europe were were a long way behind that curve. But um, I mean, the way things are going now, it's it's fantastic. It's a proper career for people to consider out of university, and uh, and there's proper career paths there for mm. everyone. And you know, I think I'm the luckiest man in the world. You know, to have built a, a career in sport. Yeah, and you just mentioned college. So you went to UCC, of course. Was that where your interest in com- the commercial side of sport grew from there? Uh, yes, I, I guess you could say it. But I, I mean, I remember as a as a kid walking around with my dad around, you know, the parish, you know, when he was, you know, when he was chairman of Casement, mm. you know, and he he was finding you know bits of sponsorship for for perimeter signage, and he was running the annual calendar and getting local sponsors to you know chip in a. Not e- not even euros then you know it was a hundred old Irish pounds mm. you know for an ad on the on the casement calendar so no I think we've always had that in the family that you know at a local level you know sport needs money to mm. to run and to function and and obviously the the further up the sports tree you go you know the the more the more commercial revenue is needed to drive the performance on the pitch yeah how when when did you get your break when did I get my break uh, I was um, I was teaching in Oxford and. Um, but I, I didn't really want to become an academic. My wife was still an academic and uh, one of us was going to have to get a real job. Uh, so I was very happy to stop being an academic. And um, I was I was very lucky. I, and I mean, it tells you how long ago this is. Uh, it's over 20 years ago. I, I wrote a, not even an email, I wrote an old fashioned letter uh, to a, a guy whose name was Alex Finn. And Alex Finn probably one of the trailblazers in terms of treating sport as as a commercial prop property and as a business and he was head of Europe for Saatchi and Saatchi the advertising agency and he'd written a number of books at the time I mean this is in the 80s on on sports clubs as brands um, and a sports clubs finding a global audience out there in the same way that you know, other brands were out there finding audiences around the world. So he'd written a couple of books on Arsenal, on Tottenham, on Man United. And I, I literally wrote him a letter saying, you're the only guy I know who's doing this kind of stuff. And this is how I think exactly. And um, and how would you recommend, you know, getting into the sports business? Mm. And uh, I was lucky enough, he gave me a call two days later and we had a chat and, you know, he got me an interview uh, with a big London sports agency. And, and that turned out to be my first job in sports. Mm, great stuff. Uh, you mentioned at the outset, you know, you've 20 years experience in, in sports marketing industry covering a, a wide range of sports. And you also mentioned uh, DHL in there somewhere. I know that you broke with one of the most, kind of, uh, I suppose, valuable partnership deals in world football with United. Didn't you, Manchester United? Yes, that was uh, 2011. Um, DHL had done nothing in, in football. And um, I advised them that gi- given the, the nature of the company they were uh, given their scale, they operate in every country in the world apart from one. 
Uh, they have over half a million employees around the world and they're just an enormous global brand. And um, I put together a football proposition for them, which was which I developed then. And we I went and negotiated a deal with Manchester United and um, and United have always been a, you know, ahead of the game commercially um, for a long time relative to lots of other sports clubs out there. And um, and I worked out a deal which I brokered with Richard Arnold, who's the the MD now, uh, and um, he was commercial director back then in twenty eleven, and basically we carved out a standalone training kit sponsorship deal, which uh, was the first time that it had ever happened in Premier League history. Before then, every Premier League football club you know, simply gave the training kit branding to the you know the playing shirt partner, mm-hmm. whoever that would be, and. Um, and literally that week, you know, everything went mad. Um, you know, every, every every CEO, every commercial director was looking at their at their kit sponsorship deal, figuring out if they could carve out training kit. And um, I mean, that was, I think, probably one of the top five football deals done around the world that year in twenty eleven in terms of value, huge amount of coverage, and it you no, know, from my point of view, it was uh, it was genuinely innovative. We got a lot of media coverage for that, but also it showed there was value in the training ground piece. And, and I'm a huge advocate of that because, you know, the reality is players play on a Saturday or a Sunday, um, but they spend you know five days a week at the training ground in their in their in their training ground kit effectively rather than their match kit. And all the coverage in the build up to a game is videoed at the training ground, all the, the press conferences and the build up. You know, so there's a huge amount of value around the training ground piece and, and I think that that deal encapsulated that and that was the first time it had been done. So that's what I'm proud of. Mm. Good stuff. And uh, you know, just tell us how you arrived at Leicester, uh, when you arrived, eight years ago now, was it? Uh, it would have been it would have been twenty twelve. So I mean twenty twelve for for reasons which will become obvious. Um Look, at that stage, I'd been in sport almost 15 years and I'd worked for a big agency. I'd worked in lots of sports. I had my own business in the Middle East for a number of years as well prior to that. And then I'd worked with a big global brand for a number of years, DHL. And um, the one thing I hadn't done, even though I'd worked with lots of clubs across the board and, you know, mm. you know, from Harlequins in rugby to Man United to Manchester City, um, to the rugby clubs down in South Africa. The one thing I hadn't done was actually work directly with the club uh, as an employee of the club or as a director of the club. And mm. it was getting to the stage of my career where if I didn't go soon, I basically would have to go in as a CEO. Um, and also, you know, the other trigger was um, London Olympics 2012 was coming up. And literally all my friends, everyone I knew in the sports business was working on London 2012. And, you know, being realistic, I just thought, look, now's the time uh, when I got to January 2012. So exactly eight years ago now, when I got to that stage, I thought, look, if I'm going to go to a club, I probably should start talking to clubs now because by the time the Olympics is out of the way, there's going to be, you know, 1,500 or 2,000 unemployed sports marketing experts looking for a job. And it's it's going to be a crowded marketplace. So I spoke to a, a lot of clubs, uh, you know, spoke to England Rugby, uh, spoke to Barcelona, Man United, Man City, all those guys, and you know, could have done something in that space. And um, you know, the one that struck me as you know, a really interesting opportunity was Leicester City. And on the surface, it you know that may seem strange, but it was just there was a big opportunity there if we got it right. Also, you know, the CEO Susan uh, wasn't in the UK 
all of the time because she was still working for the owners uh, in Thailand on, on the day job, which was King Power, that she ran that business also. And that was a key part of her work. So a lot of the time, you know, uh, the finance director and myself were the, were the directors running you know, the stadium, running the club when, when Susan wasn't in the country. So, so that was attractive. Also, we had a blank sheet of paper that, um, you know, it was a chance to create a structure hire my own people you know you know try to create my vision and implement it and uh and for me that was you know a big part of the attraction rather than going being number two at man united or three at man united or running asia you know for a big for a big sports brand that you know this was a chance to really do a root and branch uh job at a, at a club and and see how far you could take it and um you know and luckily enough you know it turned out to be a very good decision in hindsight and you know we 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 did some really interesting things, and uh, and we we had a great journey over four years at Leicester yeah, City. Definitely, and it's all it's always been a great sports city. It's always been a great soccer city, Leicester City, going back you know to the lives of Gary Lineker and 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 so on. Um, but uh, and and I suppose it's a, it's a city. Is it a city that's kind of just a bit bigger than Cork? Maybe a population about three hundred thousand. No, it's it's very similar uh, to Cork in in many ways. You know, similar size. Um, and um, I, I mean, I probably would disagree with you as a football city. I mean, when I got there, it was clearly a rugby a rugby city. Yeah. Um, because Leicester City were in the championship. I mean, Tigers were weren't at their peak in terms of the Martin Johnson Tigers and the the European Cup winning Tigers, but in recent history. Tigers were the the big show in town, and um, and so our our first job really was to you know try and take on Tigers in terms of the battle for sponsorship money, hospitality spend, and and just the affection of of local customers and uh, and you know and and that that was a you know that wasn't a straightforward battle, um, and you no know, and I think if you look at where the two clubs are now, um, you know. You would you would probably say that you know, Leicester City have certainly overtaken Leicester yeah. Tigers in terms of yeah. e- everything they do and what they mean on a match day in in that city. Yeah, and twenty sixteen, of course, the end was it was that unforgettable year. Uh, so special for you and everyone connected to Leicester City Football Club. Um, you know, winning the Premier League title at odds pre-season of five thousand to one, it, it goes down as one of the greatest sporting stories of all time, really, doesn't it? Look, it's it's it was special, and um, I think you know. It will probably still be remembered in fifty years' time and in a hundred years' time, and uh, that shows how special it was. And it it was it was just, and it was always like like these things tend to be a combination of circumstances. I mean, the team benefited from the other major teams not performing at their level that season. Um, all the other big clubs were in transition, and you know, good management team, good manager, good coaching staff. You know, the players playing at their absolute peak. And uh, and just making the most of circumstances and also momentum. I mean, once the momentum began to build, it became very difficult then to to stop it. And you no, know, so we rode a crest of a wave. And um, and look, it was a it was a special journey to be part of. Mm. How did you celebrate? How was the Flanagan uh, celebrate something like that? Oh goodness, it was. <laughs> um, to to be honest, by the end of the season, uh, it was so intense. Twenty four seven. It was twenty four seven. You know, not just for for the directors, but for you know a lot of the key staff as well. That you know, literally, we were just by the end of the season, just trying to make it to the next match day and get through the next match day without anything going wrong. 
you know, in terms of ticketing or hospitality or, you know, basic stuff like that. And the media requests just grew and grew. And literally every day you'd show up at the stadium and there'd be, you know, 200 media trucks outside for Claudio's press conference. And, and you know, and you began to appreciate the scale of it then. And, you know, I mean, what we tried to do was just get on with our job and not get distracted and the players were the same. But uh, so by the end of the season, so, I mean, I mean, I'll... I'll try to go back in in detail. We could have won the league at Old Trafford on the first of May, which was the Sunday. It was the Maybank holiday, and um, we ended up drawing the game at Old Trafford, uh, so we didn't win the league. Um, and then the next night at at Chelsea, obviously Tottenham played Chelsea, so um, I had tickets for the game at Chelsea. I had two tickets. Now my mum and dad were over for the game at Old Trafford, and uh, and I've got a. I mean, one of my fondest memories of, of that season, I've got lots, I mean, I've, yeah. I think I've got a story around every game yeah. really, but um, is, and, and this goes back to my point that we literally were just trying to make it to the match day by the end of the season and every, everyone was flat out on their feet. Um, not the players, thankfully, but all the staff were literally flat out on their feet. And I remember I got to Manchester on the Saturday and we were staying in a nice hotel and my mum and dad had come over and my brother had come up and... Um, and the, the day of the game, I remember I went and got my match day suit, my director's suit out of the car and uh, I didn't have my shirt, you know, I'd literally just forgotten my shirt. So I, sp- I spent that Sunday morning in, you know, had to go into town. I was literally waiting at the door of you know, what, whatever shirt shop it was, I think it was through it, waiting for them to open up so I could buy a bloody white <laughs> shirt so I could go to the game because I think we had to be at Old Trafford at 12 for the lunch before the game and, um, you know, and... Obviously in Manchester, no one had ever seen a guy standing outside a shirt shop on a Sunday morning waiting to buy a shirt. So they said, yeah, what's the story? And I said, oh, just, you know, I work for Leicester and uh, I forgot my shirt. And, and Lily, I always re- remember that, you know, there was five or six staff and, and they all gave me a round of applause. Mm-hmm. And, and literally we, we had that everywhere, you know, particularly in the last six months of that season that there was so much goodwill, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this is something that I've noticed since I've come to Munster as well, just the sheer goodwill that's out there. Mm-hmm. For, for the club and uh, we had that at Leicester for the last six months of that season everywhere we went in England people were saying oh my team isn't going to do it or my team are rubbish this season but I hope you do it and uh, and I think that's what made it special and then went to Old Trafford and um, Sir Bobby Robson uh, or not Sir Bobby it's Bobby Charlton forgive me because I worked with Sir Bobby as well in, yeah. the, in the dim and distant God past him. God rest him but um, Sir Bobby Charlton said um, no do you guys want to want to come outside and we went outside into the stand and uh, so over the course of that season they'd um, renamed that main stand at Old Trafford the, the Sir Bobby Charlton stand so you know I think you know when I look back on my career and you think of you know special things that you remember mm. you know when Sir Bobby says you know do you want to come out and you're walking out into the Sir Bobby Charlton stand with Sir Bobby Charlton a real legend yeah. yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, that was especially said. I always love you know walk, going out to look at the stadium before the turnstiles open. You know, when it's empty, he said you really feel the kind of. He said the memories come back to me, uh, and you, you appreciate how special the place is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I went out with with the finance director Simon, and you know we we kind of chatted about stuff. And he said, no, I just wanted to get you outside. So he said, I can't say it in there, but I just wanted to say you deserve it this season, and you know I'm I'm just. Re- really happy for you all and I'm really proud of what you've done because it's a great tonic for the game you know so that, that was a lovely special moment yeah, and um, so we didn't win that night and uh, went back to Leicester on the Monday 
bizarrely, even though it was May, it was horrible snowy weather coming back. You know, we came came back across the Pennines, <coughs> got back to Leicester early mid afternoon on the Monday, and so I had two tickets for Stamford Bridge that night. So I said to my mum and dad, "Look, do you want to go? You know, which one of you comes to the game or or whatever?" And what we decided to do was um, at Leicester City, we put on a staff screening at the stadium of the Chelsea Tottenham game. And we said, look, let's just go into that. You know, there'll be pizza, there'll be a glass of wine, there'll be beers, and we can just watch the game on the screen with the rest of the staff. And, you know, and uh, and that's what we did. We went and watched it in one of the hospitality lounges uh, with, you know, 150 of the Leicester City staff. And um, and it was fantastic. We were, you know, uh, Spurs were two up, half time, you know, atmosphere was dead. And then... Uh, then it started to change and uh you, you know Eden Hazard scored that famous goal and um and yeah it was it was just magical and literally my my nephew's a Chelsea fan I'd given him the ticket so he was at the game and um but I couldn't have chosen a, be- a better place to watch it because it, it mm. felt right to be mm. at the Leicester City Stadium watching yeah. it and the celebrations uh, were Yeah and and then of course yeah and then of course you know we had literally 20 or 30,000 people at the stadium within minutes and you know that's where the big party was and uh you know we went outside and uh yeah just incredibly special memories and you you know you saw the the pictures on tv of you know Gary Lineker watching and you know but it was, it, was, it just felt like um you know a slightly surreal time because you know every week we were thinking about you know sponsors were looking for more tickets and and literally even that man united game i was trying to find extra tickets in the way and for my family for puma for DHL and you know all all that stuff and you know and mm. mo- most of my week was still those you know concerned yeah. with those basic things you know and and it's now kind of only in hindsight you kind of kind of look back on mm. kind of and, and appreciate it more uh, really special really special no doubt and um, you know you, you left after winning the Premier League so you left on a high but Champions League football followed obviously and Champions League obviously in his is where I sat in soccer, isn't it? It's huge commercial opportunities and so on. How do you think Leicester did, you know, in that regard, in the commercial side of it, in the Champions League the following season? Look, uh, it was the right time for me to go at the end of that season. Um, I mean, uh, I think it had been an incredibly long season um, and it had been draining on everyone. Um, with the Euros coming up and literally at that stage, you know, I think everyone at, at the club on on the kind of business side of the club needed a a proper break and a proper rest and uh you know I was determined I was going to take 3 weeks off in France and watch the Irish games and the Euros and mm. have a proper break again with my family and um and look it was just going to be imp- impossible to kind of reconcile the two because literally you know the day after we won the league and had the trophy tour on the bus and everything you know the planning start started. I mean, actually, the planning with UEFA started a month earlier than that. So in late April, we were having our planning meetings with UEFA for the games and everything. And it literally was going to be twenty four months of continuous work without a day off, uh, the way things were looking. And and also, you know, I'd done four years. We'd we brought the club from mid table in the Championship to the Premier League to winning the Premier League and. Um, you know, in in a sense, it was like the end of journey one. And what does the second five years look like? And, you know, I mean, it was almost like a case of, right, is everyone on board for the next stage of the cycle? Because it wasn't just one year. It was, you know, the mm. ne- what are the next five years going to bring? So we're mm. going to do the stadium expansion. There's going to be a new training ground. You know, there's going to be all that. And, and you know, I, I just thought out of fairness to everyone, 
including myself, that it was just the right time for me to get off, that um, I wanted to do other things. I had some other opportunities that were very interesting, particularly in Asia, around um, sports investment and um, and sports strategy. And I just thought, look, I've, I've done my period, you know, mm. you know, the full intensity 24 seven of yeah. of being at a big club and 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 making that happen every week and um and it was time to do something different for a while so it was the right time for me in terms of the champions league i, I think you know leicester did amazingly well that season they were the the best performing english club in the champions league that season um i think you know the level of resourcing and staffing on on the business side of the club you know, is more advanced now and more developed um because that always takes time Mm. And um, and you know, certainly the the development in the club, both on and off the pitch from twenty twelve to twenty sixteen when I was there was huge, and that has continued since I left. And you know the 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 caliber of people, the number of people, the additional posts, the growth of the club on and off the field, uh, but particularly off the field, has been really impressive. October 2018 then was was a very dark time, wasn't it, for, for Leicester, you know, um, with the helicopter accident where the chairman and four others uh, you know, lost their lives outside the stadium. That that was so tragic. Where, where were you at the time? You know? um, I was actually in Leicester. I wasn't at the game that night, but um, I was at our family home in the, the countryside and uh, I was watching the game on TV and, um, and literally I... I heard from one of the other directors pretty much immediately... Um, what was happening and um i i got in touch with with some of the directors and so on but look it was it was a tragic accident uh and leicester is a very emotional club anyway and um look it's it, it's just desperately sad um you know uh Kunvichai was you know a, a visionary and and he no, he he delivered on the dreams for so many people, and uh, and it's just sad that you know that he died in the circumstances that uh, in which he died. But you no, know, the the club was the club was always you know bought originally by Kunvichai and Kuntop, his son, and you know so it was always owned by the family rather than by the individual, and, and you know and the family and Kuntop are as committed to the club as ever. Mm. And um, um. Leicester, of course, now are um, riding high again in in the table, you know, and going into twenty twenty. Currently second, you know, Brendan Rodgers doing a very good job there, isn't he? You obviously look out for all the results. Yes, of course I do, and I'm still in touch with you know all my old colleagues and the directors and some of the players. I mean, I've got Ayose uh, uh, Perez is my, is my neighbour and in my village in in the countryside in Leicestershire. Um, so I'm I'm still in touch with some of the, some of the guys, obviously, and. Uh, some of the circumstances are similar to season fifteen sixteen and in that a lot of the the other big clubs are in transition under new management or underperforming, and Leicester are making the most of that again and um Brendan I think has a point to prove in the Premier League after you know his experience at liverpool and uh but he's a he's a clever manager and he's playing to the strengths of the players with his tactics with his man management and uh and he's doing an incredibly good job mm. So on to pastures new for you now, Ian, and uh, we're sitting in your office here in Musgrave Park, or Irish Independent Park now, of course. Uh, it's only uh, a troll stone away from where you were brought up, I suppose. Really, so you're bringing it all back home. Um, it, it's been some journey for you, still in your 40s. So how did you, uh, how did you get the new role as CEO of Monster Rugby? How did it come about? Um, 
you're right. It's exactly. Uh, I mean, I cycle past Musgrave Park every every day on the way to Creastree when I was at secondary school. Uh, my mum grew up on Pierce Road, again a stone's throw away from here. So it's always been, you know, part of part of our family essentially. And uh, I mean, pretty much my first rugby memory is you know running on here trying to get Tony Ward's autograph when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, in in probably that would have been seventy nine or eighty, I guess. So um, look um. We've always been big rugby fans in the family. Um, I mean, uh, you'll see the pictures out there of my mum in Cape Town in two thousand and nine on the Lions tour, wearing her Munster shirt, and um, and look, I think when you're from Cork, you know, Munster is is part of your DNA, and we all know how special Munster is, and um, and look again. Uh, for people who know Munster, the circumstances weren't ideal. My my predecessor Garrett Fitzgerald, um, was ill, and you know Garrett was the first and only CEO that Munster ever had. Mm. He's been here for over twenty years. He's seen Munster into the professional age, and you know the Heineken Cup wins and the great times and and all of that. And uh, and you know so it certainly wasn't ideal, but. You know, uh, Garrett stepped down through ill health, and the post was available, and um, and um, you know that it was just a case of you know the headhunter reaching out to me saying, you know, are you interested in 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 coming back home, and um, look, it it didn't take a great deal to convince me. I I mean, we know how special Monster is. Um, rugby's in a really interesting place at the moment as well. I think. It's going to change an awful lot in the next couple of years. Um, there's new investment coming into rugby. Um, we've seen that in the English game uh, with Premiership Rugby. Mm. And I think uh, Rugby Sevens coming into the Olympics. You know, it, there's lots of new things happening. I think there's going to be lots of new audiences around the world for, for rugby. I think technology is changing so fast as well that, I mean... yeah. I think we, you and I are old enough to remember the days you know, when people would be cutting match reports out of the examiner or the echo or the limerick leader and sending them off to people. Mm. And, you know, with technology now, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You know, if you're from Munster, if you're from Ireland and you're in Australia or Shanghai or wherever you are, you know, you're a lot closer now to a match yeah. day and than you were even five or ten years ago. And, you know, it's, so it's a combination of circumstances. And also, you know, I, I think we can do amazing things uh i think the monster are really going to explode globally uh in the next few years and by that i mean um i think there's very few clubs out there rugby clubs that can be significant outside of their own country um i don't think french clubs have that opportunity i don't think english clubs have that opportunity um i think you know, maybe a New Zealand club, maybe a South African club has the capability to become a big mm. force around the world in terms of you know people recognising that club and being a fan of that club. But I think the Irish clubs have a unique advantage because simply there's so many of us around the world in terms of the diaspora that you know we literally have a natural fan base in so many countries around the world. If we can engage with them, if we can reach out to them, if you know, if we can be relevant to them. And um and I think literally and again, talking of the four Irish clubs, I think, you know, Munster means something out there in the world in a way that Leinster, Connacht and Ulster probably don't in terms of an identity that people will say, I'm from Munster. Mm. It, whereas, you know, they'll probably say they're from Wicklow or 
Louth or wherever or Dublin before they'll say I'm from Leinster in when they're in that Irish bar in New York so I think you know we've got lots of things to play with I mean obviously we've got an incredible heritage mm. incredible passion and support I mentioned that goodwill earlier about Leicester that season Leicester won the league that goodwill I've just found it replicated every everyone I've met um you know in England around the world you know Munster is meaningful there's so many people who want to help Munster there's so many people who want to see Munster win again Munster be successful again and that I mean we have so many great resources uh so many great advantages that are at our disposal and look and there's a real ambition uh at the club I think you can see that with the appointment of the coaching staff around Johan uh we've brought in you know, obviously JP brought in Graham Rowntree and Steve Larkin this year as well and they're just settling in now as well yeah. um, we've just hired a new commercial director as well Dave Kavanagh from the Six Nations so you know the, there's lots of investment not not just you know in terms of the players and the playing staff but in terms of the infrastructure that every club needs and again mm-hmm. I go back to the Leicester example that every club now has to build a proper infrastructure off the field as well to make the on-pitch success more possible and more likely but also when the on-pitch success happens to be able to make the most of that in terms of building the club and growing the club and driving the club forward so we have spent significant money and invested significantly to create the necessary resources and strength and infrastructure off the field and we want to continue doing that Mm. you're running the job around three months now how are you settling in and what are your main objectives like what are your main targets kind of immediate targets we'd say uh yes it's just under three months i mean it's gone by quickly um as, as it usually does but look it's great to be back in ireland um we have an awful lot of priorities um i just sat down with my new commercial director today to to start planning you know the commercial priorities because you know the the reality is you know we want to make everything happen as soon as possible we want monster to be bigger and better also i mean you and i in this room know how special monster is I want the rest of the world to know how special Munster is. So we're, you know, obviously we need to increase our revenues because that allows us to do more, you know, in terms of stadium, match day, digital engagement. You know, when we talk about new media and reaching out to people around the world, you know, there there's infrastructure required to do that properly and to do that well. Um, I mean, we all know what what the big super clubs in you know the NFL, basketball, soccer, what what they do in terms of their international um, engagement with fans and new fans, and uh, you know we're going to have to do a lot more in that space. Um, but as I said, I think the the time is right. I think rugby is going to change a lot and change for the better. And I think we're we're going to have unique opportunities uh, at Munster because we are a big brand, we are mm. a big club, and. Um, you know, I think of a game like Munster Leinster. I think we undersell ourselves a lot. Um, sometimes not not Munster, but I think, you know, for me that's the biggest club rugby game in the world, and we don't do enough with it. And I think there's a huge opportunity out there, and that's just one of the examples. But you no, know, that's essentially our old firm, and you know, you mm. know, the world stops for the old firm in lots of countries around the world, and you know, Munster and Leinster will be at that stage, whether it takes three years or six years or ten years. We will get to that level um, of recognition because we are a super club and mm. and we, 
we need to realize that and you know that's the big opportunity and that's the big challenge you know how yeah. how we build the club and how we you know how we get the monster story out there to the to new audiences around the world and to the you know the Irish diaspora around the world. Yeah, yeah, that brings me on to my next question. You mentioned Leinster. I mean, how difficult does this compete with Leinster financially? You, you look at if they had three games in the Viva, it could be worth three million to them. Would say you know you're playing your games in Limerick, Tone Park. You don't have that much clout, I suppose, in terms of financial power. Look, it's it's a it's it's a more complex picture than you know match day attendance and so on. Um, I mean, I mean, probably the the biggest resource that Leinster have is you know simply the the school system in in mm. Len, in Leinster simply because of yeah. the dynamics of Dublin within Ireland that you know there's an awful lot more schools playing rugby up there there's an awful lot of fee paying schools that you know invest in rugby coaches and none of that is anything to do with Leinster per se but it's a natural resource that they have as in they have an awful lot more kids coming out of those schools aged 18 if you, I mean, if you look at St Michael's for example the amount of kids coming out of that who are ready to go straight into professional rugby uh, no it's a it's a wonderful ad- advantage to have and no we don't have that at the same level Connacht and Ulster don't either um so i mean you know that's that's probably the the thing which gives Leinster the greatest advantage because they just have a a far greater pool of players coming into their academy yeah. Um, yeah. On, on day one I, I suppose the uh, you know the, the challenge is obviously um, not, not just Leinster, Leinster but it's, you know, it's the other clubs out there but I prefer to focus on us and what we can do mm. because there's, there's no point saying you know complaining that you know we don't have the kids coming into the, the academy in the same numbers yeah. as Leinster do um, I mean, and I'll tell you another story. I mean, and and this is kind of what got me thinking originally uh, when I was thinking about Munster as a project, and what we could do with it. As um, I worked with Barcelona a long time ago, and and everyone thinks of Barcelona as a super club now, and how they're the best or close to being the best. Mm. And I remember a very different kind of Barcelona. I mean, I re- really remember when they were second best, and when they were always the the team that was. Um, in second place and and that was when I don't know if you remember Trevor uh, Man United sold Beckham to yeah. Barcelona yeah. they announced it on their website and they, they agreed a price of 25 million and Beckham refused to go because he didn't want to go to Barcelona and his agent did a deal with Real Madrid that night he went to Real Madrid the next day and Barcelona was almost toxic for big players then um, as in they always had a glamour but they were always second best they were not going to win and Around the same time then, Real Madrid, I think they had debts of 200 million euros and mm. the Spanish government bought their training ground for 200 million euros, gave them a new training ground free of charge. Yeah, I remember that. I, and I remember, you know, the Barcelona guys that I was working with saying, oh, how can we compete with that? You know, they've got all the natural advantages. They've got all the resources, um, they're the ca- club and the capital, and we'll never be able to compete. And and actually, it took some time, but what, what Barcelona finally did and... Uh, was they they understood what they were and what they were was they had a genuine identity they had a hugely passionate audience fan base they had that catalan identity they had the catalan language they had all that stuff and they had a bit of the underdog about them and it was only when they began to actually talk about that and get that story out to the world that people around the world got are really bored of that story of the big club in the capital city that wins by spending money um, 
and you don't see it in any other sport. So, I mean, you know, people don't like the New York Yankees, you know, because they spend money. Um, people, you know, a lot of people don't really like clubs like Real Madrid now because they spend money or Paris Saint-Germain. It's a boring story. You know, mm. you keep on spending money until you win a Man trophy. City, yeah. yeah, so there's elements of that. Um, but that story of an underdog with a real identity, you know, uh, not with all the resources in the world. In fact, you know, trying to overcome the club with all the resources that's a fantastic story and that's a story that really translates across countries across languages and religions and people love that story and we absolutely have that same story here at Munster yeah just uh, Limerick obviously is the main centre uh, are there any plans Ian you know to further develop Cork maybe Cork look um, I think we we certainly want to have more infrastructure here and I'm not talking about you know stadium and matches and anything like that but I think we we want to have more support for our academy in Cork um you know going back to my previous point about players coming into the academy out of schools and so on that we want more infrastructure in Cork to support that process to bring more players into our academy who are potential monster players because you know in an ideal world we want 15 Munster players wearing the Munster shirt who've come from Munster, who've come through the schools here, who've come through our yeah. academy. We may never get there, but that's the ambition to have numbers 1 to 15, world-class players, all from Munster. Yeah. And if they can't be from Munster, they have to understand what Munster is. And, you know, we've always had a sprinkling of world-class players from, from South Africa, from New Zealand, who've come in and they get what Munster is. I mean, if you look at someone like Albie Matthewson, who's um, been here a relatively short period of time and has now moved on, you know, he absolutely got what Munster was about. And, mm. um, you know, so so Munster has traditionally always been a, a balancing act between the Munster core that we always have and yeah. then the kind of sprinkling of world-class talent that really understand what Munster should be about. So so in terms of Cork, yes, I I think we need more infrastructure to support the academy um, and to facilitate more players coming in who can potentially yeah. be good enough to play for the Munster senior team. Yeah, because I think that was one of the criticisms, wasn't that a Munster continually going abroad to bring on the players to bring, uh, and, and not enough coming through the academy at the moment? It's kind of a worry. Kind of, isn't it? Look, um, the, the reality is we, wa- we want to be the best rug- rugby team in the world, the best rugby club in the world. and. Um, and you know, and we set our standards high, and and our our challenge will be to bring players in and to develop players who can be literally the best player in the world in their position. So, I mean, if you look at top class sport all over the world, you know the you people talk about homegrown players, and uh, and and certainly in in lots of countries now you see a a complete absence of homegrown players we will never have that we will always have a monster core um our job is to try to work with the schools with grassroots with the domestic game to facilitate bringing more players through yeah i suppose when you're looking coming to the end of the interview and you're you're looking at eight years without a trophy for monster and currently going through a transitional period i suppose under johan van gran would that be fair enough? Um, I wouldn't necessarily agree that it is a transitional period. Uh, I mean, Johan's been here for two years now. Uh, I think Steve Larkham and Graham Rodri have just literally arrived and are still you know, settling in mm. and are making a big impact. We're hugely happy with the, the quality of the coaching team and what they can deliver. Um, look, we're very ambitious for Munster and, and my job is to give Johan and his coaching staff all the tools to be successful um, 
you know and, and that's that's my main job um when i talk about munster becoming in the next few years a big global club because rugby clubs will have that opportunity very soon i think um obviously we have to be competitive we have to be in with a chance of winning and we're very close i mean we had two semi-finals last year mm. so it's it's just a case of you know how we how we make that final step but we're we're hugely optimistic about the direction of travel um and you know we believe that monster will win and win soon and once we win we'll we'll win repeatedly um no so we're we couldn't be more optimistic about the future um if you're listening to this, if you're a Munster rugby fan, I think you should be excited because we think we're going to have a very special time ahead of us. Um, I mean, the the key thing I think you know for people to to bear in mind is you know Johan's come all the way up from South Africa with his family, uh, you know, his wife and two kids. Steve Larkham's come all the way. From- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Australia with his wife and two kids. You know, Graham's family are moving over this year. You know, I've I've relocated with my family and you know, none of us is doing this for a paycheck. None of us is doing it because it's a job of work. I mean we're doing it because we all believe there's a very special project here at Munster. And we believe we can all make it happen collectively, and and we believe that we will be very successful in the coming years. Good stuff. And and just uh, on form and injuries, you know, being a um, you know concern this year, the, the team took a bit of flack that they following the defeat to Ulster in Belfast last weekend. So you've been unlucky with you know injuries as well. Look, every club has injuries, and um, you know, and you just have to get on with the job effectively. I mean, Munster never do things the easy way, and. 
we've got a big game on Sunday and yeah. you know we we're, we're certainly not going to do it the easy way um, chance to bounce back it is a big chance to bounce back uh, I mean as well as injuries I would say World Cup years are really difficult uh, in Irish rugby um, we had 12 players away in Japan for the World Cup um, so you know we're missing those guys for the training camp for all of September all of October um, and and Johan and his team have had to make so many changes you know when they come back and then they're rested um, we had a mandatory rest period again over Christmas for all of those 12 guys so that's why there's been a lot of changes so it's a combination of injuries and and the kind of world I mean the reality of a World Cup season is that players have to play 13 months in a calendar year which is impossible so it's it's not ideal and you know and it's not a lot of rugby it's a lot of rugby but I mean I suppose the point I'm trying to make is it's not the same for the other three provinces because we had 12 away uh, Ulster had three and Rory best retired so they only had to integrate two players back um, Connacht only had two away Leinster had more but their squad depth is mm. is uh, is at a level that we're not at at the moment and again so I I think we, we've probably suffered disproportionately in terms of chopping and changing and having to make enforced changes and um, and that has hurt our momentum as much as anything else and because the the guys are having to get used to playing with different players either side of them every week and and that you know that has that hasn't been straightforward um you know and that, that's not an excuse um that's just simply you know, stating you know, the facts as they are and uh we're hugely encouraged by what we've done this season what i see at the training ground every week uh hugely encouraged about what the future holds for for monster and um look this is just one of those spells in a season where it's um it's um it's 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 been a bit more difficult on the pitch but you know this is why we stand up and fight yeah just going to get to it two things you can always depend on what monster the monster support on sunday and that monster have dug themselves out of holes before and dug deep look this, when we talk about what monster means i mean i mean we're we're very lucky because lots of people know what monster means they say yes i mean i i keep hearing it in from supporters that I meet in, in pubs around the games and so on that they say, you know, we always bring the dog, we always bring the fight, we always bring the bejesus. And, you know, and, and that's great because so many clubs out there, no one really knows what their identity is or they don't have an identity. Uh, but everyone knows what Munster is and what Munster means, that, that we always do stand up and fight and, uh, and that we've built, our, we've built our club identity on, on those two things. The fact that we do travel we do travel more than any other club. You see those red jerseys all over the world, wherever we play. And that's a fantastic asset for us to have. It's a fantastic uh, tribute to the guys who've worn the shirt. Uh, fantastic tribute to the fans who come out and support us in such big numbers. Um, it, it, it's a huge advantage for us that wherever we play, you, know, you see the, the red all over the stadium. You know, It just lifts the guys so much. And no other club in rugby has that. I mean, Claremont have their their yellow wall or um, yellow army, you know, which they nicked from us. You know, you know and the president will tell you that. Um, but you know, we're the only ones where it comes naturally and instinctively. And um, yeah, so the fight, the passion of the fans, you know, the the red everywhere, the red army, you know, those are are key things for us. They always have been, and they always will be. And. Um, you know, we we hope we'll make them proud. You know, on Sunday, um, and um, you know what I can assure you is that we're working very hard. Uh, the club is going in the right direction, and 
they're going to have some amazing times in the years ahead well good luck on Sunday and uh, thanks for taking time out to talk to me Ian and in your own role best of luck going forward thank you very much Trevor good to see you again